This is Menagerie. If you're lucky enough to take a long walk around Central Park someday, and I highly recommend it if you can, you'll be sure to notice one thing. The place is absolutely lousy with statues. Some are notable figures from history. You can find Alexander Hamilton and Christopher Columbus here, Hans Christian Andersen too. There are fictional characters as well. Alice is on hand with some Wonderland colleagues, and Romeo and Juliet embrace not far from the park's theater. The one that's always caught my eye, though, isn't a person. It's a statue of a dog. A Siberian husky, to be exact. Tail upright, eyes forward, bronze tongue, and a permanent pant. Unlike most of the other non-human statues in the park, and there are a few, this animal has a name, and it's one you might even know. Balto. It's a great statue. It just suffers from the same problem as most statues. They almost never tell the whole story. I've tried, I've starved them, I've told them all over this quite barren land. Where the sheep stitch is straight, white and silent. Where the timber lifts white. There are probably a couple places on the planet that would be more inconvenient sites for a city than Nome, Alaska. But only a couple. It's in Alaska, so I don't have to tell you it gets cold. But sitting on the shore of the Norton Sound, inlet of the Bering Sea just south of the Arctic Circle, Nome gets cold even for Alaska. It's not just the climate that makes Nome an unlikely place for a city. It's also the isolation. When it was founded in the early 20th century, Nome was reachable by sea for a couple of the warmer months a year. But once winter hit, the only way to get there was overland, a journey that could be generously viewed as foolhardy, a more accurate term might be suicidal. Even today, there are no roads connecting Nome to Alaska's larger cities like Fairbanks or Anchorage. The only way in or out is by plane. So what drove Nome's founders to set up shop in such a distant and desolate corner of the earth? The same get-rich-quick scheme that put California on the map. Same one that has folks pressing their luck in the Sahara Desert today. A good old-fashioned gold rush. In September 1898, a trio of prospectors known as the Three Lucky Swedes struck gold, kicking off a mad race to the region. Dust, flakes, and even nuggets could be panned from the beach where the Snake River meets the Norton Sound. Anyone who wanted to give prospecting a whirl could buy a set of tools, wade into a few inches of frigid water, and roll the dice. This everyman's gold rush turned the beach into a tent city overnight. Before 1898, Nome was a camping site occasionally used by native hunters. By the summer of 1899, more than 1,000 tents lined the beach. The next summer, more than 20,000. In June 1900, 1,000 men a day were arriving on ships from Seattle and San Francisco. Not all of them were panning for gold. With so many new arrivals on hand, business owners could make a mint as well. A legion of saloons, general stores, and brothels sprung up to serve the burgeoning tent city. Downtown Nome's first business model rewarded two things, the ability to set up quickly and a proximity to customers. Most shops were driftwood shacks, not much more permanent than the tents they catered to, and established perilously close to the water's edge. That summer, a storm blew in that revealed the flaws of Nome's remedial urban planning. 
Sustained winds of more than 70 miles an hour produced waves that crashed into the settlement for a day straight. Boats were tossed onto the street like toys. Businesses were reduced to splinters. Tents on the shore were washed out to sea, some with their occupants still inside. In just a few months, Gnome's prospectors and bartenders had willed a bustling city into existence. It took Alaska a single night to all but wipe it off the map. There was still plenty of gold to be found on the beach, and a living to be made off of those panning for it. After seeing what the weather could really do, though, most of the new arrivals became swift departures. By the time the last boat left a month later, just 5,000 people stayed behind to stick out the winter and build a more lasting gnome. While the gold rush ended and the population continued to decline, the new city endured. By the 1920s, Nome was home to less than 1,500 people, but those that remained had established a school, a hospital, a local newspaper, a library, even a small theater. It may not sound like much, but these amenities made Nome a center of culture and commerce in its cold corner of the world. And none of it would have been possible without dogs. Sled dogs are a fairly modern development in the species' long history of domestication. They were likely used for the first time about a thousand years ago by native peoples on both sides of the Bering Strait. In Alaska, native groups like the Eskimo and Athabascans both used sled dogs for long-distance journeys and hunting trips, hitching teams of eight or more canines to sleds made of hickory and birchwood. A millennium after they first appeared, these sled teams were still at the center of modern life in Alaska. Folks had tried to devise alternatives, of course. Some hitched horses to snowbound wagons with predictable results. A few tried to ride reindeer. The reindeer did not take kindly to it. The less said of a brief flirtation with hot air balloon travel, the better. Each alternative proved one point again and again. If you needed something to go from point A to point B in Alaska, sled dogs were your best bet. Whether it was a letter to a loved one or a shipment of gold ore, dogs hauled the mail and freight that kept the region running. People, too, were dependent on these teams for transportation from one Alaskan town to another. Dog sleds were a thriving industry in the frozen north, serving as mailmen, ambulances, and taxis all in one. Most families in Nome had their own dog team, a family car powered by table scraps, salmon jerky, and chunks of seal blubber. Dogs outnumbered people in the city, and when not in harness, many roamed the streets or accompanied their masters into local stores and saloons. By night, the howling of these many kenneled canines came to be known as the Malamute Chorus. <laughs> Sled races became popular throughout Alaska, and Nome was known for the great mushers and top-notch dog teams it trained. In the winter of 1925, though, Alaska's dogs wouldn't be racing one another. They'd be on a single team, trying to outrun a deadly plague. Like a garment that raises a story Through the last white sweep of the prairie Where the blackbird is bridge on the pole I stand from dog to bearing On December 15, 1924, the Alameda was the last ship to leave harbor near Nome, getting out just before the Norton Sound iced over. It was a dangerously late departure. A vessel that overstayed its welcome in the sound ran the risk of becoming icebound. At best, that meant being frozen in place for a season. At worst, a ship could be crushed to bits by the constant pressure of ice flows. 
Winter wasn't much more forgiving on land. Gnome residents were so cut off during this season that it was said that even God leaves on the last boat. As the Alameda headed south, those left behind were carefully counting the goods it had delivered and planning for the months ahead. Until the ice broke up in June, there would be no more supplies. From necessities like coal and dried fruit to niceties like butter and coffee, what you had on hand was what you had. If something was missing, and something was always missing, that's how these things go, you hoped it was something you could barter or borrow from a neighbor. Otherwise, you'd just have to do without. At Maynard Columbus Hospital, Dr. Curtis Welch was learning what his practice would have to do without. As he took stock of tongue depressors and rolls of gauze, one item came up missing, a case of diphtheria antitoxin. Welch had only a couple doses of the medicine on hand, and those were expired. The doctor doubted they would be much use in an outbreak, but it likely didn't cause him much concern. In his decades as a physician, Welch hadn't seen a case of diphtheria yet. In this, Gnome's only doctor was both unusual and lucky. Unusual because the disease was a relatively common one, a leading cause of child mortality around the world. Lucky because it was a gruesome illness and in the 1920s, a difficult one to treat. Diphtheria affects the mouth and throat, where it causes swelling, inflammation, and kills off cells fast. So fast, in fact, they can't be disposed of and start to coagulate. The result is known in scientific literature as a pseudomembrane. In practice, it's a clump of gray goo, the consistency of old leather that coats the throat and windpipe. An untreated diphtheria patient has the life choked out of them over the course of days, earning the disease its grim nickname, the Strangler. It was late January 1925, about a month after the last boat had left Nome, that Welch first encountered the Strangler. The doctor was checking in on Billy Barnett, a three-year-old suffering from a sore throat. On closer examination, Welch found a chilling sight, the telltale gray membrane of diphtheria. Within a couple of days, Billy Barnett's young life was over. By January 24th, four more children from the community had succumbed to the disease. Welch and his nurses had an epidemic on their hands, and no means to combat it. Consulting the medical literature, the doctor estimated he would need about a million units of antitoxin to head off a diphtheria outbreak that threatened the entire city. He had about 80,000 units on hand, and most of that expired. The call went out by telegram to all points in Alaska, as well as far-flung locations like Seattle and Washington, D.C. Finding the antitoxin was the easy part. Within a few days, an Anchorage hospital had turned up 300,000 units they could send to Nome immediately. It wasn't as much as Welch and his team needed, but it could stem the tide until a better solution could be found. Delivering the cure to Nome, though, remained a problem. From Anchorage, the serum could travel as far as Nenana, nearly 700 miles distant from Nome. 700 miles of mountain and ice flow. 700 miles of blizzard and gale. 700 miles by dog sled in the middle of one of the coldest winters the Earth has to offer. There was another option. Hospitals from across the country had pooled all the antitoxin they could spare, and more than a million units waited in Seattle for dispatch to Nome but the city would be unapproachable by boat for months. Alaska's newspapermen and representatives in Nome began clamoring for the units to be sent anyway, by plane. 
A flight to Nome could shave weeks off the delivery time, potentially getting badly needed medication to the blighted city in mere days. But air travel in Alaska was experimental at best. The planes of the time were primitive affairs. Think cloth-covered wings and open cabins. The odds that either a plane or its pilot could survive a winter storm that far north were basically nil. Even if a craft could get airbound for Nome and stay that way, there was no infrastructure to support it. The flight would have to refuel in towns without landing strips and be retrofitted with skis to have any hope of survival. In the end, Governor Scott Bone decided to get the serum to Nome the same way most things moved in Alaska, by dog sled. Alaska had centuries-old trails crisscrossing it, dotted with roadhouses where a team could get a break from the ice and a cup of coffee. It had the best mushers in the world and countless dogs eager to take up the harness and get a sled underway. But the trip was too long and too dangerous for one team to make alone. Instead, Alaska's mushers would make the delivery in a relay. The territory's finest drivers and their dog teams were called to duty, each man mushing through sub-zero temperatures and life-threatening conditions to get to the next roadhouse. There, he would hand off the serum, tightly wrapped in layers of rabbit fur to keep it from freezing, to the next driver. In just the three days since Dr. Welch had put out a call for antitoxin, more than a dozen new diphtheria cases had sprung up, despite large parts of the town being placed under quarantine. 674 miles of dog-sled trail separated Nanana from Nome. Any one of them could be lethal to even the most experienced sled teams, but if the serum didn't arrive soon, Nome's death warrant was already signed. The mushers of Alaska harnessed their teams and took their places, ready to do their part. The serum arrived in Nanana late on the evening of January 27th. The temperature was more than 50 degrees below zero, and it was pitch dark. Ordinarily, the trek to Tolavana, the next stop on the relay, would be broken up by an overnight stay at one of the roadhouses. Ordinarily, a driver wouldn't even consider making it in temperatures below negative 40 degrees, much less in the dark. But Wild Bill Shannon, the first driver on the relay, knew that nothing about this run was ordinary. A few hours here and there would add up. Could mean the difference between life and death in Nome. He set off immediately on the first leg of the relay, a 52-mile journey that would nearly end the so-called serum run before it started. Most of Shannon's dogs were young, and a 12-hour run in temperatures colder than minus 50 degrees would be the most he'd asked of them. Compounding the team's problems, a group of horses had recently been driven along the dog trail he was following. The heavier animals left behind deep ruts that made the route impossible to navigate. Instead, Shannon's team, led by a husky named Blackie, would have to travel much of the night along the top of the frozen Tanana River. At least, they hoped it was frozen. As dicey as a run in sub-zero temperatures in the dark was, running the river made Shannon's leg of the relay far more dangerous. There was the obvious pitfall, that the ice could crack under the team's weight, plunging them into the Tanana. But that was only one of the hazards the river posed. 
harder to spot would be the frigid water that could seep up through the ice. With the temperature so cold it could freeze mercury, wet feet were soon lost feet, on dog and man alike. And in the dark, Shannon was running blind. He would have to rely entirely on Blackie to avoid the river's pitfalls and keep the team, and the serum, moving forward. The lives of Nome were in the hands of Alaska's dogs from the very start of the race. And Alaska's dogs did not disappoint. Some, though, gave their all. After a brief stop at a roadhouse about halfway to Tolavana, it became clear that three of Shannon's dogs, Jet, Jack, and Cub, were in no shape to continue. All three had arrived bleeding from their mouths and severely frostbitten. Shannon trekked the rest of the way to Tolavana with a shorthanded team, hoping the dogs would recover and he could pick them up on a return trip. It wasn't to be. For Jet, Jack, and Cub, the pit stop would be their last rest. But the team made it to Tolavana. They thawed the frozen serum, and they handed it off for the next leg of the relay. 52 miles down, 622 to go. Oh, when at the of the season, we discovered the creek was up deep. And we also discovered By the time Bill Shannon arrived in Tolavana, Leonard Sapala had already departed Nome. Sapala and the other drivers on what would be the final legs of the relay had an even tougher job than their colleagues. They had to travel first to the roadhouses where the handoffs would be made. Then they would turn back and make the run all over again, multiplying the time they spent on the trail and the risks that something could go wrong. Sapala was assigned one of the longest and most dangerous stretches of the trail. There were few men more qualified for it. Sapala was a champion racer whose teams of Siberian Huskies were respected throughout the region. That wasn't always the case. The Siberian dogs were smaller than Malamutes, and in the first races they ran were met with derision. But what the dogs lacked in stature, they made up for in endurance. In Siberia, Huskies had been carefully bred by native peoples like the Chukchi, only the strongest animals were left unneutered, and foraging for food was encouraged. The result was a strain of dog bred carefully for fitness, but with more than a bit of wild in their blood. A team of huskies wouldn't knock anyone over with their power, but could keep going long after larger competitors had lost their win. A team of sled dogs is only as good as its leader, though, and the head of Sapala's team was Togo, a black husky with a white blaze on his chest the 12-year-old dog was likely nearing the end of his racing career, but his years of experience navigating Alaska's often deadly trails made him an obvious choice for the longest leg of the race. That's not to say others had it easy. While Sapala and Togo were traveling the 170 miles to Shaktulik, where their leg of the race would begin, Bill Shannon had already lost three of his dogs and nearly his face to frostbite. When Edgar Kalins arrived at Manly Hot Springs, the owner of the roadhouse there had to come out and pour warm water over the musher's hands. They were frozen solid to the handles of his sled. On the way to Shaktulik, Miles Gunangnan found himself barreling down the side of a mountain in whiteout conditions, pulled by dogs who could neither see nor slow down. Even so, it's hard to argue there was a more treacherous leg of the serum run than the 91 miles Sapala and Togo carried the antitoxin much of which ran directly across the frozen water of Norton Sound. The same ice that prevented ships from accessing the Sound in winter meant that sled teams could traverse the frozen waters. 
they just couldn't do it very safely. The ice over Norton Sound wasn't a uniform sheet. While it could go for miles uninterrupted, the ice could just as easily break off into flows. When these flows collided with one another, they formed jagged, impassable ridges. The terrain of much of the Sierra Run was brutal, even actively hostile to those navigating it. The terrain that made up most of Sapala's leg, though, couldn't even be counted on to stay in one piece. After just a few miles of travel on the frozen sound, Sapala's worst fears were realized. He heard the telltale crack of ice breaking up, and before he could get to the relative safety of shore, open water appeared before him. His team was on an ice flow, at the mercy of the currents. Though a path across the sound remained visible, he could no more reach it than he could fly to the moon. The only thing he could do was wait and hope that the flow he was trapped on floated close to more solid footing. After nine hours adrift, Sapala's luck changed. Not so much that the flow came in contact with solid ice, but it came within a few feet. It wasn't a great chance to get back on track, but there was no telling when he'd get one this good again. The flow could shift directions at any time, heading out to sea with Sapala, his dogs, and the serum on it. To get his icy raft back on the frozen sound, though, Sapala would need a minor miracle. To get it, he turned to his most trusted miracle worker, Togo. To close the gap between the drifting flow he was on and another that abutted the shore, Sapala had to cover about five feet. Never had five feet seemed so far. Knowing that he couldn't make the jump, Sapala came up with an unorthodox plan B. He tied a rope line to Togo and heaved the husky across the breach. Amazingly, the dog not only landed safely, he didn't take the sensible next step of running away from the man who had just tossed him across an ice chasm. Instead, he started tugging on the line attached to his harness. Just as Sapala had planned, the dog was reeling the rest of the team toward the shore. Togo was as dependable as ever. The same couldn't be said for the line he was pulling, which snapped under the stress. Sapala stood on one end of an open water channel in the Norton Sound, just a few uncrossable feet from Togo. Man and dog both watched the broken line sink beneath the surface, and Sapala knew that it marked his failure. Sixteen men and hundreds of dogs had given everything to get the antitoxin this far, but the great race of mercy would end on a raft of ice in a frozen sound. There was every indication that Sapala himself would end with it. What happened next, we have to take Leonard Sapala's word on. He was the only person on that ice flow. His is the only account we have. And that we have an account at all tells us Sapala made it to the next roadhouse. He handed off the serum to Charlie Olson. That he made it back to shore tells us something unbelievable happened on that ice flow. Something unbelievable is what it would take. Something unbelievable goes something like this. Togo had understood what Sapala was asking of him, to tow the rest of the team to shore with the line. With the line broken, the dog still understood his job. Togo dove headfirst into the frigid water, found the broken end of the tow line, and grabbed it between his jaws. Then, he swam back to the shorebound ice and pulled himself up. Then, according to Sapala, 
The dog rolled over several times, winding the rope around himself in a makeshift harness. And once that was done, he did what he would do in any harness. He strained against the line, closing the gap between the two icy shores just enough for Sapala, the serum, and the rest of the team to make it to safety. However it actually went down, the race was back on. Sapala and Togo's end of the bargain wasn't fulfilled by a sight. They had miles yet to cover to make the shore, and miles after that to make the next stop on the relay. In all, Sapala's sled team would cover more than 250 miles of trail during the relay. That's three times as much distance as any other team. And they tackled 84 of those miles in a single day, an unheard of rate, even for the most ambitious musher. But most importantly, they made it to the next roadhouse at Goldapen. The relay would continue. Just a few more stops separated the serum from Nome, where five children had succumbed to diphtheria, and another 28 cases raged around the city. From Golovin, Charlie Olson traveled to Bluff, where he transferred the package to the care of Gunnar Kassen and Kassen's lead dog, Balto. If you know anything about this story, you probably know the rest of it. Balto leads his team through a blinding blizzard. He navigates trails he can't see, can barely smell. He plunges through snowdrifts and comports himself in every way like a hero. Like the kind of dog you'd make a movie about. He pulls into Nome early on the morning of February 2nd, 127 hours after the relay began, a canine savior to a town on the brink. Five days after it began in Nenana, 20 mushers and more than 150 dogs had delivered the antitoxin, and Balto is the face of one of the most remarkable events in Alaska's history. The kind of dog you might make several movies about. The nonstop media coverage makes stars of Balto and Kassen overnight. The letters from school children that flood Gnome's post office aren't addressed to Togo, or to Jet, or Jack, or Cub, but to Balto. When the sled team travels the country making celebrity appearances in front of packed arenas and local rotaries, Balto is the draw. When they make the first movie, it's a single reeler entitled Balto's Race to Gnome. The animated version decades later shortens it even further. Just Balto. Balto's star turn is a mad rush around the nation, from Seattle to Los Angeles to New York, where his likeness is preserved in bronze. But Huskies aren't built for sprinting. They thrive at steady speeds, not all-out dashes. After months on the road, Kossett had tired of the limelight and returned to Nome. His dogs, though, remained the property of Northern Commercial, the company Kossett and Sapalo both worked for. Instead of returning to Nome with their driver, Balto and his team were sold to a novelty museum in California. Less than a year after his great run, Balto was chained in a dingy pen, an exhibit in one of LA's seedier tourist attractions. It wouldn't last, thankfully. After just over a year, Balto's plight caught the eye of George Kimball, a boxer turned businessman visiting from Cleveland. Kimball knew the reputation of the dogs and balked at the conditions they were living in. Once he returned to Ohio, he raised money from the community to purchase the sled team and bring them to Cleveland, where they lived out the rest of their days in comfort at the Brookside Zoo. Sapala, meanwhile, was incredulous that Balto had been immortalized in bronze, while Togo was more or less forgotten by the papers. And he had a point. 
It's not that Balto didn't deserve to be memorialized. He very much did. The problem is that if you're looking for heroic dogs, the 1925 serum run was a target-rich environment. It's not a bad thing that Balto has a statue. It's a bad thing that 149 other dogs don't. And if you think the idea of putting up 150 bronze dog statues in Central Park is ludicrous, I don't know what to say. This might not be the show for you. Following the race, Sapala was determined to get his dog team its day. The musher started his own tour of the lower 48, speaking at circuses, universities, pretty much any place that would let him tell Togo's end of the story. Sapala and his dogs traveled the country to crowds and fanfare, culminating in a 10-day engagement at Madison Square Garden. The dog's journey would take one final turn, though. And, as with the 1925 race, it would be the last leg that made the most impact. Once he arrived in the Northeast, Sapala was invited by a group of New Hampshire dog breeders to test his huskies in a race against the local talent. The always gay musher accepted the invitation to participate in New England's young dog racing scene. He also promptly smoked the competition. In his first race, the Alaskan at one point pulled over to help untangle the harness lines of a competitor. He still beat his nearest rival to the finish line by seven full minutes. After a few similar performances, Sapala's Huskies had earned the same admiration among dog lovers in Maine and Massachusetts that they had found in Nome. Sapala promptly set up shop with a local kennel. Togo and his unneutered teammates retired from racing for a new life as studs. Just three years later, in 1930, the American Kennel Club recognized the Siberian Husky as a new breed based on dogs sired by Togo and his teammates. Sapala's dog team would become the dogs that literally defined what it meant to be a Siberian Husky. Though, if we're being fair, they weren't the only animals who defined it. A certain statue in Central Park, whose inscription ends in the words endurance, fidelity, intelligence, does a pretty good job of summing things up, too. Menagerie is written and produced by Ian Chan. That's me. If you're interested in learning more about the serum run of 1925, I highly recommend Gay and Lainey Salisbury's book, The Cruelest Miles. It was an indispensable reference and a great read to boot. The music for this episode was Lament of the Old Sourdough, performed by Paul Roseland. The theme music was O Susquehanna by Defiance Ohio. If you like today's show, you can follow Menagerie on Twitter at Menagerie underscore pod. You can also subscribe to the show on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do listen on iTunes, be a pal. Rate and review the show. It only takes a second and it helps other people to find us. We'll be back next month with a new story. Until then, thanks for listening.